to Pound the Rock, an NBA podcast by the score. I'm Joseph Cacharo. I'm joined in studio by fellow co-host Joe Wolfon. What up? Coming up later in the show, we've uh, got an exciting guest, former championship winning Cavaliers general manager, current NBA TV analyst David Griffin will join us on the show for about 15 minutes to talk to us about a cool new TV project he's a part of over at NBA TV. It's a reality show, actually, and he'll give us some thoughts on the unofficial second half of the season. But right now, Wolfon and I, uh, let's get right into it. What did you think of what I am calling a tame at best All-Star Weekend? Um, so, full disclosure, I watched All-Star Saturday night. I did not watch the All-Star game itself. I usually don't. I kind of tend to use the weekend as a chance to like get away from basketball for a little bit, and I've never particularly liked watching the game. So I can't speak to the All-Star game itself, but Saturday night, I think, um, I mean, look, All-Star weekends, I feel like, are almost always just defined by the dunk contest and whether it was a good dunk contest or not. Like, that's the memory that people tend to walk away with. And the dunk contest was a bit of a dud. A bit. (laughs) But I thought it was a great three-point shootout um, with, uh, like, an unexpected result uh, and a photo finish. So... I found that quite enjoyable. I mean, I, I'm more curious about your takeaways because you were obviously boots on the ground in Charlotte, and I get the sense from talking to you off air that you came away kind of underwhelmed by the whole experience. Yeah, uh, underwhelmed is a good way to put it. Um, look, I think, uh, and I wrote this in my takeaways too, I do think to a certain extent it's almost not fair because, like you mentioned, a lot of times like our memories of these events and you know how memorable they are, they're, they're slaves to the... Um, performances on the court and like how exciting the game ends up. So it's, you know, it's not Charlotte's fault that the dunk contest sucked. It's not the NBA's fault that the dunk contest sucked. Uh, but the dunk contest really did suck. Like Dennis Smith Jr., the defending champ, who's uh, probably one of the, you know, obviously one of the high flyers in the NBA. Where did he, he took like 30 attempts when you include the fake, att- the failed attempts that aren't official attempts. He took like 30 to do two or three dunks. It was terrible. Um, but even just beyond the events, like, I don't know. So this was the third All-Star I've, I've been on the ground for. I did one in Toronto, one in L.A. And just like the buzz in the city, no pun intended for Buzz City, uh, was not the same as it was in those, like, bigger markets. And I don't know if it just comes down to the fact that those are, like, big cities um, that are a lot more used to kind of, like, hosting these kinds of big events even outside of the sports world. But, yeah, they're just – there wasn't a buzz in Charlotte. I had two Uber drivers the day I got there, which was Thursday – who both told me they had forgotten it was even All-Star Weekend at all until they started picking media people up. Um, in general, like people, even I tried to talk to locals about the Hornets and Kemba and how they thought, and like most of them just wanted to talk Duke or UNC. Like no one, no one even seemed to care. The Thursday night we were there, the Hornets were getting blown out. I can't remember who they lost to. I think maybe Orlando on the Thursday. They got killed. And, yeah, they got shellacked and, by the and, Magic. And multiple people were telling me they didn't really care. They were just waiting for this week's UNC Duke game. So like... Um, again, I know a few interactions doesn't make me an expert at all on the pulse of that basketball community, but you really get the sense of how much of it, it's a college town when it comes to sports, at least when it comes to basketball. And, and yeah, All-Star Weekend just had a weird lack of buzz. The crowds, I don't know if you could tell on TV, the crowds were dead, man. Like you yeah. could hear a pin drop in that arena. It did seem that way, but again, I didn't know whether to chalk that up to the crowd itself or, or just the product that was on display, but... I mean, that's just disappointing to hear for a city like Charlotte that I feel like has always sort of been clamoring for NBA relevance. This was like their big chance, their big showcase, an opportunity to, you know, prove to the rest of the NBA that they are a viable NBA market and that they deserve 
acknowledgement and, and credibility and respect and, and for them to drop the ball like that um, seems rather disappointing. And I don't know who the buck stops with on that front, but as you wrote in your takeaways piece from All-Star Weekend, it seemed like MJ was fairly absent from the entire weekend and as the Charlotte Hornets majority owner, I mean, I think a lot of that responsibility does fall on his shoulders. Do you feel like he sort of abdicated his responsibility as at least an ambassador for basketball in the city of Charlotte? All right, look, he, he was at an NBA Cares event, and he did, uh, like, on the Sunday morning, afternoon, they do, like, the Legends brunch, and he was at both of those events, and then he did the usual thing that the owner of the team who's hosting it does as he comes on the court at the end of the game to, like, officially pass the torch of All-Star to next year's hosting duties. Ironically enough, from MJ, it goes to Chicago. Um, but it, it's weird, because on one hand, you can make the argument, well, like, he he was just as present as any other team owner would be when their team's hosting All-Star Weekend. But I think when you're Michael Jordan as a team owner, you need to be a little more present than the average NBA team owner when when your city's hosting All-Star Weekend. And I guess that's where the disappointment was for me. Um, Is, yeah, he he seemed somewhat invisible throughout the weekend, at least to the public, if you weren't, you know, the type of person that was going to be at the Legends brunch or an NBA Cares event. Yeah, I mean... I don't know. I don't know what to say beyond that, except that it just, it just seems like a bummer for the city of Charlotte um, and for, honestly, for that NBA franchise. I think, I don't know how much players pay attention to this kind of stuff, but I feel like, I mean, you remember the All-Star Weekend in Toronto that was, what, three years ago now? How bitterly cold it was in Toronto that weekend? And you've heard sort of rumblings ever since then that that did kind of stick in a few people's minds. And they have this memory of, you know, being in Toronto for All-Star Weekend and it just being, like, freezing cold. And so, you know, if you come to a city like Charlotte that's had a difficult time in the past attracting top NBA talent and the weekend is a bit of a bust for reasons that go beyond just the on-court product, uh, I feel like that's just a bad look for the city and, and for the Hornets organization. I know, like you said, it's it's not necessarily Michael Jordan's responsibility to make sure the entire weekend goes off without a hitch, but... Uh, at the same time, I mean, he, I think, had an opportunity to step in and make it a more memorable event, and uh, it just seems like that didn't happen. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Uh, before I move on, I will add to you that uh, in addition to the bitter cold of uh, All-Star Weekend 2016, I've heard that a lot of players also remember the quality of the parties, and <laughs> they remember that for better reasons than the cold. This is where you need to cue in Stephen A. Smith's uh, Toronto rant. Toronto. Uh- Canada is special. But so are you saying that, that they won't be remembering the quality of the, po- the parties uh, in no. Charlotte this past weekend? Yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna say that's hard. No, <laughs> they definitely will not be. Um, all right, moving on. One thing that happened while I was in Charlotte on the Friday morning, I guess, was uh, the news that the Pelicans have fired Del Demp. So the night before, I believe it was, um, Anthony Davis left the game against OKC with a shoulder injury, reportedly left the arena with Rich Paul before the game was over. And then in his post-game media scrum, I believe Alvin Gentry called it a dumpster fire of a situation or something along those lines, if I'm not mistaken. And within, what, 12 hours, the GM was fired. Um, Your general thoughts on that? I don't think anyone was surprised by the decision. I think the timing was a little surprising. Yeah, I mean... It's so funny because the the timing of all these sort of big moves that have happened this season have been pretty surprising in a weird way. The timing of the Tom Thibodeau firing, uh, you know, the timing of Anthony Davis's trade request, the timing of the Dell Demps firing. 
And I, I think maybe we just have to throw away that concept of like these things happen at preordained times. Like um, the NBA has become so fluid, I think, that I don't really know if we can be surprised by the timing of anything anymore. And in a way, it is strange. Like they would keep Dell Demps on up until the trade deadline when, when Anthony Davis's trade request was out there and effectively he was in charge of answering the phones, presumably, uh, and fielding calls about potential trade offers. And then after the deadline passes, they decide to ax him and effectively put the, the sort of uh, decision on an Anthony Davis trade in somebody else's hands. And I wonder if that means that they never really had any intention of trading him before the deadline anyway. And, uh, you know, I guess, you know, if that, if that was the case, why did they wait? But I, uh, maybe also this, I, I, you know, you've heard sort of reports coming out that Gail Benson was furious about Anthony Davis having left the arena during that game. And Alvin Gentry, I think, was upset that he didn't hear about it. There was no communication there, even though Dell Demps apparently knew. So maybe that was just the final straw. Um, but I just think there's so many moving parts to this that you can't really nail down a time that would have been the right time for something like this to happen. And I think the bottom line is this has probably been a long time coming. And I think Dell Demps probably earned himself uh, a kind of stay of execution with some of the, ma- the moves he made um, in the last couple of years. I think the DeMarcus Cousins trade, uh, the Miritich trade last year that kind of energized the team and carried them through uh, that incredible first-round playoff run. I think those moves objectively were, were solid moves. And obviously the boogie trade didn't work out you know, through no fault of Dell Dempsey's. But uh, if you look at his entire body of work and where the Pelicans sit now, I think he has to bear the brunt of the responsibility for that. Yeah, and I think I think the whole situation just kind of speaks to how dysfunctional the Pelicans have become, or, or I guess have always been. In that, like you know, even if you look at two years ago when they made the boogie trade, that was during All Star Weekend, right? right? And they were seen as this team with a transcendent superstar like right. Anthony Davis that was going for it, and people were lauding that. And the trade return that Sacramento got, everyone was ripping it as like, wow, New Orleans pulled off a coup. This is great. They've got two legitimate like superstars, and within two years, they have nothing to show for getting boogie. Uh, AD wants out and is, for all we know, might have played his last game for that team, like the way it's gone. Yeah. Um, Demps is fired. Gentry, I, you know, I don't think he should be held very responsible for much of this, but he might be. Like, it, the whole situation, even when you think of the whole ownership situation and, like, the, the how cloudy it was um, when Gail Benson took over, like, it's just, there's, like, a stench around this franchise. And there's another thing I wrote in my takeaways piece is just kind of, like, trying to like walk around the floor that it was the rising stars media day and i was just trying to like taking people's pulses talking to other media people trying to talk to some people i know that work for teams around there and the the sense i got when i asked about the pelicans was just that with the fact that the kings have kind of figured it out this year for real like that the pelicans are now on a short list um with some other teams for the title of most dysfunctional i think that's pretty evident yeah well i think uh, there's so many factors have contributed to that and i think Anthony Davis has really helped contribute to that and I mean his trade request and the way that it was executed the public manner in which it was executed has just been such a fiasco and I I just don't think he really took the measure of what the fallout of that request was going to be 
like this thing has left such a crater on the entire NBA, right? And you look at the number of people and the number of franchises now that have been affected by it. Uh, what has happened to the Lakers in the wake of this? What might happen to the Celtics now? Um, you know, now that basically the players on that team know, or at least can surmise based on what we've seen reported in the media, that it's basically fair game on anybody on that roster come summertime. And, uh, you know, the, the, the Lakers young players effectively feeling the same thing after having all been put on the table in a trade offer for AD at the deadline. So there's just been so many ripple effects to this. And like you were saying, I mean, I don't know what the severity of that shoulder injury was for Anthony Davis. Uh, his camp basically refuted the idea that he just left the arena for the sake of leaving it. He said he left to go get an MRI. And if that injury was serious enough that he had to go get an emergency MRI, had to leave the game midway through, but then he played in the All-Star game, it's not a great look for him. And especially him saying during uh, All-Star media that he had a 29-team list of preferred destinations. I mean, again, he came out before the deadline, what was it, a week beforehand, saying that he was making this decision because he was choosing legacy, wanted to compete for championships. If you're saying, I have 29 teams on my list, that is obviously not the case. If you're saying, I would rather go to, uh, you know, the Charlotte Hornets or the Atlanta Hawks than stay with the Pelicans, then you're not really making a decision based on the desire to compete for championships right now. So it was just curiously handled all around. Um, and I think it, it, like, I think where we're at now, like the Pelicans and, and Anthony Davis both should probably come to an agreement that it's time to shut him down for the rest of the season. What do you think? Yeah, no, I agree with that. I think, um, neither one of them right now can afford like some sort of knock on wood catastrophic injury that, you know, obviously would impact AD's career, but also for the Pelicans, just, they're not going to get any value for this guy at all. So I think it is in everyone's interest, but I don't, you know, I don't think the NBA is going to be okay with that. That's not going to fly with Adam Silver's office. Uh, and I guess in there... Well, I, I would push back on that and say that having seen how it's played out, ever since the NBA essentially issued that mandate to play Anthony Davis, I think they've got to look at the situation and be like, look, this isn't reflecting well on anybody here. This is not a good look for the league to continue to force this unhappy marriage to work for the rest of the year because... Look, the Pelicans the, the Pelicans have no reason to want to play Anthony Davis. I don't think Anthony Davis really has a reason to want to play anymore, and I think we saw that basically borne out because, for one thing, the Pelicans were capping his minutes. For another thing, he was clearly half-assing it. He went out and had a game where he scored three points on one of nine shooting, and then he's pulling himself out of the game and leaving the arena halfway through. I just think it's just a bad look. It's a bad look for everyone involved, and I think, look, none of this stuff is black and white and and none of these rules are really objectively enforced i think the league has to understand like i know they don't want to set a precedent here but they have always selectively enforced these rules when it comes to you know tampering when it comes to sitting star players and i think they can take into account the fact that the pelicans have been put in a situation where there's nothing in it for them to play anthony davis and i think anthony davis has put himself in a position where he has nothing to gain by playing and so for the league to intervene and force this to continue happening, I don't think there's anything in it for them either. 
Yeah, the one thing I'll add to that too is I think um, it doesn't look great for Rich Paul either. No. Um, you know, Rich Paul um, brands himself, and rightfully so, because he is, as you know, one of the NBA's power brokers. Um, when you when you represent LeBron James and you're as close to LeBron as he is, and you represent Anthony Davis, and you know, like obviously he is a power broker, but I think there was an air around him of maybe that he could do no wrong, and I think what we're seeing here is that he can, because this was a massive misstep by Team Davis. Um, and even if you just like look at the way it's being perceived, look, I know you know no one's necessarily taking what Charles Barkley says like as an analyst seriously, but at the same time, you know when he's talking about. Uh, like just the perception around it over this weekend. I, I can't remember exactly what he said on one of the TNT shows, but essentially just saying that like um, Anthony Davis has been made to look like a fool because it's clear like he's been listening to advice from others and everything. And he's kind of right, man. Like that, that's how this is all going down. And, um, you know, I, I wonder like, would this, would this alienate some players maybe from dealing with like clutch and, and team, maybe not team LeBron, but team Rich Paul, like, they haven't handled this very well. And unless you're LeBron, who's Teflon when it comes to this stuff, like, I don't know, do you really want to be a part of this? Uh, that's a great question. And, you know, without knowing how much of this was Davis's decision and how much of it was him sort of being prodded by his representatives and how much of it was him listening to bad advice, I, I don't really know. This was, to me, just a, a complete misread, I think, of the situation and of the market. And... I don't know how to read into that necessarily. I think you come away feeling like it was an overreach. They could have done this quietly. Uh, and, and, you know, if you make sure that this doesn't leak, I mean, basically, Rich Paul came out with that statement saying that Anthony Davis had made this trade request. And if they had handled it behind the scenes and he hadn't gotten traded, if his teammates hadn't had to find out that he didn't want to play with them anymore if LeBron's teammates hadn't had to find out that he didn't want to play with them anymore. Um, this thing could have been controlled so much better. I don't think that, you know, making the trade request when it was made is in itself a bad decision. I think just playing it out as publicly as it ultimately was played out was, was the biggest mistake here. And I also just think it became so obvious so quickly to everybody who was paying attention that the reason they did it when they did it was to try and get him to go to the Lakers. And any other way that they tried to spin it was just going to be so transparently fake um, that, you know, th there's no other takeaway other than, look, they tried to take control of this situation and, they you know, they played a losing hand. Like, they, they lost. And they have to deal with the fallout of that now. And I, I just think... What's interesting to me is is how is this going to affect players who find themselves in similar situations in the future? Is this going to spawn a wave of players asking out a year and a half ahead of when their contracts expire? Or are players going to look at this and say, you know what, I'm not, I'm just going to wait and maybe they do it, you know, the off season before or, you know, ahead of the deadline in the final year of their contract because uh, this obviously didn't work out. The last thing I'll add to that before, I know we want to talk about some thoughts in the second half, but um, Adam Silver at his press conference on Saturday, like his annual kind of State of the Union address that he gives during uh, All-Star Weekend, actually mentioned that uh, it is something they will look at from the league's office perspective in terms of like when they eventually sit down for the next CBA, um, is that the unintended consequence. You know, they were, the, the league was trying to look for a way to give usually small markets a chance to um, get like transcendent stars locked in earlier, right? Which is why they gave them the ability to extend a year earlier um, 
And now instead what we're seeing is in the case of Anthony Davis, players were actually using it as leverage to say, well, I'm not going to accept this extension. You can give me a year before my free agency. Therefore, we are now like not on good terms for a whole year. Right. You know I want out. The league wants out. So it's had this unintended consequence for these small market teams it was supposed to protect. And yeah, Adam Silver came right out and said that is something that they will sit down and look at. Um, all right, getting to the the second half of the season, even though there's like 20 to 25 out of 82 games left, but I guess second half. The final third of the yeah. season, really. If you include the playoffs, I guess it's like the second half. Um, let's just quickly bounce around some things we're both um, going to keep an eye on. I'll start. I'll just say that for me, the one thing I'm going to be keeping an eye on is the seeding of the top five in the East. Because, look, everyone thought Indiana was going to fall apart without Victor Oladipo. They're maintaining, I believe, the third or fourth seed right now. They third. they had won five or six, I think, going into the break. Um, and that's huge, obviously, because if Boston and Philly, you know, assuming Toronto, Milwaukee stay 1-2 in some respect, that that would leave Boston and Philly in the 4-5 or five spot, which means, A, one of those teams is being eliminated in the first round. Okay, like imagine Philly after all the moves they made losing in the first round, or Boston after all the hype they had losing in the first round. But not only would they lose in the first round, it would mean that one half of the East would have three of uh, Milwaukee, Toronto, Boston, Philly in one bracket, and then one of those four teams would have the other bracket to themselves. So how do you see that shaping up? I don't see Indiana maintaining a top four seed. Uh, or sorry, they'd have to maintain a top three seed, actually. And they're, they're one game ahead of both Boston and Philly who are tied in the standings, so... I, I really admire how that team has played all year, as you well know. Uh, and I especially admire how they've rallied in the wake of that Oladipo injury because they had a couple tough losses after that happened. Uh, and then they rallied back and won five in a row. Um, they, they play extremely hard. Um, and I like the sort of assemblage of pieces that they have on hand. I just don't think ultimately they are going to have enough offensive firepower to get themselves across the finish line with a top three seed. But uh, I still think that they're going to be a pretty tough out for whoever ends up in that four or five seed. Do you think they're getting to this? Like, No, no, I think, look, like, oh, I think sorry, they're, they're the going to right, fall, the fall, in, I think the gonna fall into the four yeah. or five bracket. Yeah, I see what you're saying. And I think that that's still going to present a pretty strong incentive for one of Boston and Philly to get up to number three so that they don't have to play Indiana in the first round because that's still, to me, going to be a tougher opponent than any of the teams that are going to finish six through eight. As well as some of those teams have been playing, I would still rather avoid Indiana in round one. Um, and I think right now it, it, there's a bit of stratification there, and I think Milwaukee and Toronto are almost certainly going to finish one-two, and then Boston and Philly are almost certainly going to finish three-four. So to me, what's most interesting is how the matchups are going to shake, shake out uh, going into the East semis, like who is going to play who. And I just think that's so interesting because the matchup dynamics between all four of those teams are like rock, paper, scissors. And there are some teams who are, you know, kind of uniquely geared toward beating others, uh, but particularly vulnerable uh, against, you know, say, Team C. You know, if, and like obviously Boston has kind of been Philly's kryptonite. Toronto has also kind of had Philly's number, but Milwaukee has had Toronto's number. Uh, but Boston, I think, has found a way to exploit Milwaukee. Um, so I just think there are so many interesting dynamics there, and I really want to know how that shakes out heading into the second round. Yeah, the second round of the Eastern Conference playoffs is going to be delicious. And I don't know when the last time we've ever been able to say that is. No, I mean, I think that, like, yeah, I, can't, I cannot remember 
a time, honestly, in the 21st century where we have had an Eastern Conference second round that has been as intense, as exciting, as high quality in terms of the teams involved, uh, and in terms of the stakes. Like, all of these teams have huge summers ahead of them. Boston with Kyrie Irving's free agency. Toronto with Kawhi Leonard's free agency. Philly with Jimmy Butler and Tobias Harris's free agency. Milwaukee, I mean, they're fortunate enough to have Giannis locked in for another two years after this one. But Middleton is a free agent. Brogdon is a free agent. Brooke Lopez is a free agent. Eric Bledsoe is a free agent. I mean, there's a lot on the line for all of these teams. I mean, apart from them just being extremely good teams, they're all going to have a lot at stake. And I don't think any one of them is going to be satisfied with a second round exit. So. No, agreed. What's, uh, what's the one thing you're keeping an eye on? Um, so I'm really interested to see how things come together for Houston down the stretch because obviously they have just been carried by James Harden pretty much all season long. But they're starting to get healthy again, finally. Chris Paul is back. Hasn't quite looked like Chris Paul. Is this just Chris Paul now? Or can he get back to, I mean, even like 90% of the level he was at last year when he was a top 10 player in the league? And Clint Capella is going to come back as well. And I wonder, honestly, the way that they have just plugged Kenneth Fareed into that rim runner role in that offense and how successful he has been has made me think that maybe we overrated Clint Capella just a little bit. And is that going to be that much of an upgrade? I obviously think that he is quite a bit better than Kenneth Fareed. But I also think that any sort of athletic big man, you can sort of plug him in in the middle and you know playing around James Harden that just facilitates a lot of easy baskets. I think Capella's a lot more of an impact defender than Kenneth Farid is. And defense is really where Houston needs the most help. But also Capella was kind of meh at the defensive end when he was playing. Uh, so I'm just really fascinated. Like when that team gets healthy again, can they stay healthy? If those guys around Harden can get to the level they were at last year, that to me is you know immediately the second best team in the West and the biggest threat to the Warriors. I think we both agree that as amazing as it's been watching Harden do what he's done, if he has to do that in the playoffs, it's not going to get them very far. So um, I'm really curious to see what they look like going into the playoffs. Yeah, and the thing I'd argue too is that like the Rockets, like a lot of the other teams in the West playoff race, you can basically talk me in to any team right now in the West playoff picture, as long as they avoid Golden State in their half the bracket, you can talk me into any of those teams being in the West Finals against the Warriors, and you can talk me into any of those teams losing in the first round. So for me, it's like just seeing who avoids the Warriors bracket. Like we've talked about it with the Lakers. None of us are fans of the way this team has been put together aside from LeBron. They're dysfunctional as hell right now. But, you know, I've said it before. If LeBron gets this team to the playoffs and they find a way to get the seventh seed, you know, whatever, and avoid the Warriors, like would you really be that sure that the Lakers can't win a couple rounds with LeBron playing? No, not like, so it, it's fascinating. And yeah, the Rockets are a good example. If the Rockets hit their stride and avoid the Warriors, for all we know, they might coast through the first two rounds if everyone plays like last year. Yeah, I mean, I think I would make, I would probably put the Spurs in the category of teams that I wouldn't expect to make the conference finals, yeah. regardless of how their matchups shake out. Um, that might be the one team that I look at them and say, yeah, I just, I, I can't see them winning two series. But I agree. I mean, for virtually anybody else, I mean, the Nuggets have looked outstanding for stretches. Their uh, defense has definitely slipped like the last few weeks. Slipped, but. Yeah. As I think we expected, but, you know, their offense was kind of cold to start the year while their defense was being, uh, you know, unexpectedly strong. And I think those two things have sort of teeter-tottered uh, in the opposite direction. So now 
their offense has regressed to the mean as their defense has as well. Um, and they've also dealt with a ton of injuries. And I think, you know, if that team is healthy going to the playoffs, they're a force to be reckoned with. The Thunder have been amazing despite their kind of structural flaws uh, and the fact that they just don't really have a ton of depth. Um, yeah, I mean, I think predicting basically who the top four, like the, the remaining four teams in the West are going to be is really interesting. Um, I'm also really interested to see how this Markel Fultz thing plays out in Orlando. It's been, I think, like three months now since he had that diagnosis of thoracic outlet syndrome. They gave him at the time a four to six week recovery timetable. But I think it's such a rare injury that nobody really knows how long that kind of recovery can or should take. Is he going to play again this season? And if and when he does, how long of a leash is he going to have? Because Orlando has suddenly rocketed back into the playoff race. They have a really easy closing schedule. They could very easily end up in sixth in the East. How much are they going to prioritize winning right now, getting as high a seat as they possibly can in the East playoffs? Um, and how much are they going to prioritize? Look, we, we have this guy who was a consensus number one pick in the NBA like 18 months ago on our team. We have a chance to turn him into something. Does that take precedence over, hey, maybe we can get to the sixth seed? Yeah, I mean, I think in the past I would have said this team would just be desperate to get a couple home playoff games in there. But I think um, I think with the new management in there with Jeff Weltman, I think this is his second year on the job. I do think they're they're looking towards the future and not as concerned with, you know, what would be a meaningless. Um, I don't think for- it would be meaningless. I really don't. I, I think given the fact that they have not made the playoffs in I think seven years now, I think it would actually be pretty important. And, and I think the fact that they held on to Vucevic through the deadline indicates that that they think it does matter. Even if they go out in five games in the first round, I, I think that's important for them. Yeah, and look, if, if they keep the band together, then I do think it can be important. They can, it can kind of be like a team-building exercise just to get yeah. there. But if they get there and then like there's an overhaul, which it wouldn't make sense if they kept Vooch, make the playoffs, and then let him walk. But I don't know. Stranger things have happened, especially yeah. with Orlando. Um, I think that does it for, uh, for our half of the show. Uh, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, former Cavs GM, current NBA TV analyst David Griffin is joining us. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And if you haven't already, download the Score app for all of the breaking news, live scores, and feature content you'll ever need. All right, welcome back to Pound the Rock. We're very excited about our next guest. As Cavs GM, he won a championship in 2016 in very memorable fashion. Now an analyst on NBA TV. He's involved in a new reality show that debuts Wednesday night on NBA TV. David Griffin, welcome to the show. Hey, guys. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. So first thing, get right into it. Um, tell us what GM School is and, uh, and what our viewers can expect. Well, GM School was a brilliant, a brilliant thing put together by SAP um, GM School basically takes four really, really bright contestants, pits them against each other relative to their ability to, to use stats and analytics to help build a lineup and a franchise. Um, I, I think it really focuses more on the analytics side of what we do from a, a GM perspective. But they brought together four really diverse contestants, four people that really are, are strong in their own right. Um, and it was far more difficult to pick a winner than I would have thought. 
<laughs> so, so what kind of things are the contestants doing to, to test their GM capabilities, I guess? Yeah, so we put together three challenges. Uh, they needed to demonstrate their decision-making ability using stats and analytics across these three challenges. There was a post-game press conference challenge. They had to draft players, and then they had to select a lineup using the salary cap. And at each step along the way, they were challenged by other individuals. Uh, Kevin McHale is with us in, in the broadcast as well. He does a sensational job. Um, was really excited to have Evan Wash from the NBA analytics team there um, leading the draft process. And then Roz Gold on Woody, who is, uh, I think, terrific as our host, um, was a big part of the show as well. Uh, but Kevin, myself, and Evan really led the, the challenges, as it were. How, and I don't know if you were involved in this process, but how did you guys kind of go about finding these contestants? And, and what were you looking for? I mean, apart from obviously, you know, like you said, the analytical acumen, but um, what sort of background uh, were you looking for when you kind of whittled it down to the contestants that you found? I, I think the way it was done, and I did not have anything to do with getting to the finalists, the way it was done, I think they put a call to action out to several different uh, analytic-based um, um, schools, analytic-based programs, and they got kids from all over the country. They got people that are managing different uh, companies that are much further along in their process than, say, college. Um, but they got people from all different diverse backgrounds. It's really an impressive group of four they they called together. And again, I, I don't know exactly how it all started and where they came from, but the group they ended up with was really impressive. And what is, what's in it for the contestants? You know, if they, um, for the winner, what, what's in it? So the winner actually uh, will do a informational interview with the NBA league office. Um, I, I think the league office potentially is a place that could be looking at the winner um, as a home um, and it's something that I think as we continued, if we did do this again uh, with the support of SAP, I think we could continue to focus on different areas of, of analytics and, and running a front office. You know, maybe you could do some things where we're more cap-centric in our analytics approach than we were in this one. This one was much more player-centric, much more lineup-centric in its approach. So I think you could do a lot of different things with it. So to that effect, I mean, I feel like there has been for a while now this sort of uh, dichotomy in thought in terms of uh, like who is really capable of assessing talent in the NBA or who is really capable of being a GM. And in this era where there is, you know, a, a sort of proliferation of advanced stats uh, and, and a rise in analytics in general, it seems like more and more people probably feel like they're qualified to be an NBA GM. I wonder no where... Question where you kind of um where you kind of sat on that spectrum going into this exercise and whether this uh actually changed your opinion of that at all it didn't actually we, we've had so many different um what's the word i'm looking for we've had so many different uses over the years for analytics and the explosion of data that's available to us now and the ability we have to dissect it and get incredibly granular with the data that exists now around the league is, is incredible, and it's a real blessing for decision makers, but it can't be the answer in and of itself. Data is only as useful as the quality of questions you ask it to solve. 
And so I, I think what ends up happening is people look quite often at the numbers as an answer in and of themselves, and they're not. The, the numbers provide answers to questions that are asked by basketball people, for lack of a better term. So I, I think you can be in a situation where you understand the analytics at a really deep level. I think you can recognize talent at a really deep level. Quite frankly, most fans can recognize the most talented players on, on the floor. I think what the real use of analytics and the blessing now and what we're able to do thanks to SAP and others, we can really break down the game in a way that it hasn't been able to be done in, in many years. Second Spectrum does some things from a video perspective that's never existed. And because of that, we're sort of finding what the frontier of data analytics is going to be. But again, it's only going to be as useful as the quality of questions we ask it. So just as a follow-up to that, and without giving too much away, um, the contestants on the show, I mean, did you get the sense that they were asking the right questions? And did you feel like there was any sort of uh, experiential element that was missing um, you know, from what they brought to the table? Yeah, you know, it's fascinating. Actually, it kind of went the other way. I think one of our contestants had experience in an area that gave her a significant leg up in, in some ways. And then we had contestants who had experience in, in areas along the lines of analytics that gave them a leg up at one stage in the process. So because we had such a diverse group, I, I think they had people who had strengths in different areas represented. And so, yes, I think you'll see that the person that ends up winning uh, is going to be able to apply the trade in a lot of different ways. And that's, that's, I think, the most important element of being part of a front office is you've got to offer several different skill sets and come at this with an openness and a mind that's, that's curious by nature. And, and I think, again, all four contestants were, were capable of that. And the winner, I can tell you this, if the winner doesn't end up getting hired by the NBA, the winner will end up getting hired by a team in the NBA. I, I would be stunned if that did not happen. Um, well, I guess follow up to that would be, you know, if uh, if you do eventually end up in a front office again, which I think everyone expects you eventually will, would you hire the the person that ended up winning this this contest? It, it all depends on what the front office we had looked like. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I couldn't say that just point blank yes because I, I don't know what the front office would look like and the needs we would have in any given place. But if it worked out that I I did end up connecting with another opportunity. Um, if there was a need in this area, there's 100% this candidate would be very attractive. The, the last question we have for you about the show, David, before we get your thoughts uh, a little bit on the season here, is just, um, you know, reality TV, a lot of people, uh, they gravitate towards it because of the drama that comes with it. I've seen the trailer for the show. It, it does look like there's some drama and some suspenseful moments, too. Would you say uh, the show will kind of deliver on that drama to viewers, or is this more of a show just kind of for basketball nerds like ourselves? I think it's a little bit of both, actually. I, I hope what it ends up doing is it speaks to basketball nerds like us, and <laughs> I, I hope it speaks to casual basketball fans that are interested in, in what's out there. I think sometimes there's kind of a disconnect between casual basketball fans and the nerds as though you have to be mutually exclusive. And I think as a casual basketball fan, understanding the depth of what exists from an analytics standpoint 
can can give you more enjoyment of the game. And I think at the same time, as a basketball nerd, sometimes just being freeing your mind and being part of the drama of the league, you know, with all of the social media and all of that can be more enjoyable as well. So I, I think it's a good blend for everybody. No, I think that's really well said. Uh, getting your thoughts a little bit on the unofficial second half of the season here, the one thing I wanted to ask you is, look, you, you, I know it was pre-Durant and pre-Boogie, but you did obviously have a huge hand in building the last team that actually beat the Warriors in a playoff series. Uh, based on that experience, is there a team right now in the NBA, is there one team that you're looking at as, okay, that is the, the team that can beat these guys four out of seven? Or, and if so, why? Or do you just feel like no one's doing it? this year with this team yeah I don't I don't look at it in terms of this team can or this team will I look at it from the standpoint of this is the deepest the top of the Eastern Conference has been in years and in part it's because LeBron is no longer in the Eastern Conference but I think many of the teams there were holding their holding their cards very close to the vest and keeping their powder dry until LeBron did leave the East and then they've all, I, I think, to varying different degrees, gone all in. I, look at what Toronto, Milwaukee, Philadelphia have done. All three of those are very compelling teams in terms of their ability to ultimately get over the hump. Um, I, I'm really impressed with Boston as well. Ultimately, I think that might be the team that comes out of the East. Um, they've struggled the most to bring it all together, but I think they also have the most – upside as a group because I think they're the most Swiss Army knife-like of, of, the, of the elite in the East. And I'm not entirely sure the biggest threat to Golden State won't come out of the East. Um, I, I don't know for certain that there's a team in the West that I like more than any one of those Eastern Conference teams. I think, you know, before the season started, a lot of people probably expected that the biggest challenger to Golden State would be the Lakers. Um, because LeBron had gone there, because I think a lot of people expected another superstar to end up there this season. Obviously, they're in a little bit of turmoil right now. You have experienced sort of the unique challenges of building a team around LeBron, which I feel like, you know, part of it is the way that he plays. Part of it also is just because of his age and, and the number of miles that he has on his body. Just having him on the team gives you a sort of imperative to win now that you might not have in a different situation. I guess what I'm wondering is um, where in your mind can the Lakers go from here? And also I'm wondering, like, have, have Magic Johnson and or Rob Polinka reached out to you at any point to ask for your advice on how they can kind of go about this? Um, it's interesting, actually. When I looked at their situation coming in, I was not terribly bullish on the season they were going to have if the team they entered training camp with was all they had. Um, I, I, it felt like they put it together recognizing that it was going to be a natural evolution over time. They got LeBron on a multi-year deal. I think they intended to improve the team at trade deadline, probably beyond what they did. But I think coming into the season, they looked at this as a multi-step, multi-phase process. And if the training camp roster could be viewed as one phase, then deadline was going to be another free agency as another heading into camp the following year is another. And they were, they were trying to be a little more mindful in the way they built it over a sustained period of time because LeBron's multi-year deal gave them the opportunity to do that. And I think what they found is that LeBron's presence alone puts so much emphasis on winning now because the expectation is he always does. 
that the pressure around your organization becomes significantly greater than you anticipate going in. And your ability to ignore the noise as a franchise and your ability to lead everyone, every interest group around your team, your fans, your owner, your head coach, your players, everyone has to be led when LeBron is present because there's just so much volume of noise around the team. And I think they've probably been taken somewhat aback by that to some degree. But at the same time, Magic Johnson certainly isn't going to be rattled by attention, media attention. And I, I, think, they'll, I think they'll write the ship over time. But I, I think they needed to get significantly better at this trade deadline if they were going to really contend. That pressure that you talked about, David, is that something that you can relate to from the first year LeBron was back in Cleveland? Or do you think maybe because of his age this time around it's a completely different animal? Well, the pressure I certainly can relate to uh, just because we were in a situation where we only had him on one-year deals. You know, we had him on one deal that was a two-year deal, but it was his option on the second year. Right. You know, we were never in a situation where we felt like we were going to be building in a mindful, sustained way. You always kind of felt like you were chasing something, um, and, and that makes it very difficult. And, and I'm really proud when I look back on what we were able to do in terms of augmenting the roster and not selling the farm relative to the future, that we were able to keep them in a position to pivot rather quickly. And I think Kobe Altman and his team, the vast majority of which we hired and are still there from our, our tenure, um, have done a really, really good job of pivoting quickly. They bought optionality with the Kevin Love contract, and I think they've done an exceptional job. But when, when we were in the process of doing it, because it was a short-term viewpoint you were doing everything you could to win right now so our team building was completely different than what the lakers are doing and have done to this point because they just have more time to look at it more in a long-term view and frankly they also had more young assets to sort of identify what they really were we knew kyrie irving was a star we didn't have to identify how good he was and i think the lakers have been learning sort of as they've gone along, what those young kids are capable of. And, and that makes team building more difficult for them. All right, David, appreciate the insight and uh, appreciate you coming on to tell us about GM School. Thank you so much, guys. Really look forward to uh, seeing it air tomorrow night at 8 o'clock. Thanks, David.